Hi, so this is Hannah Vaughn, and I am doing a podcast today on mental health, and this episode is about denial and what you are afraid to tell yourself. Um, and I have my friend Natasha here, who's, we're just going to discuss, you know, bounce ideas off each other mm-hmm. about denial. And my big question is, is denial helpful or harmful? And we have a few sources to discuss and that have different views. So, yeah, let's get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the first source we're going to discuss is, um, an article by Adrian Barden called The Truth About Denial, and, um, he mentions that denial is two things. First, motivated cognition, which is the unconscious tendency of individuals to process information in a manner that suits some end or goal extrinsic to the formation of accurate beliefs. So basically, you're making up your own kind of reality rather than the actual reality. Yeah, how I perceived that is like, we all have a story, right? So an event happens in your life and... It might be you a You see it one way, I see it a different way. Yeah. And then there's how it actually happened. Right, exactly, exactly. Okay. And so the motivated cognition would be, like, for example, my, like, growing up, my parents left me once at swim practice. And that's what it is. That's the situation. I was forgotten that's at a practice. That's the facts. That's the facts, right? The no emotions involved. Exactly. Uh-huh. And then my motivated cognition would be, I'm not important. Yeah. It's like evidence to then build they meant this. to forgive me yeah forget they, meant, me. they meant to forget me right yeah. there are other things more important than me um and that would be so then anything your, else that happened in life truth. yes that would be your truth but it's also your reality right right and your version of reality versus the actual factual events that took place right and if i wanted to view the lens the world through that lens of i'm not important enough then i'll as other things happen, I'll file them under that belief, which would be the motivated cognition. Mm-hmm. Right. So then the second thing he says is um, that denial is also rationalization, um, which is basically retroactively inventing defensive justifications for your own beliefs, mm-hmm. whether they're true or not, or accurate or not. But retroactively going back and and kind of just being defensive about it Mm -hmm. so that it fits your worldview Mm -hmm. yeah totally and like you said before fits into that idea of like if I have a category in my mind like oh I don't matter because people forgot about me Mm -hmm. or they always forget about me Mm -hmm. that um Mm -hmm. cognitive distortion Mm -hmm. then that would go under rationalization while it's happened before Right. It happened this time. Right. And now it's filed away into my file of I'm not important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is... Oh, he also mentions that um, for the purpose of this book, denial is the pervasive, pervasive human tendency to deny uncomfortable truths. Mm. So... 
what for you is an uncomfortable truth um, and have you come to terms with it? Mm-hmm. So this is something that I've actually learned a lot from you about oh, um, okay. <laughs> just in how you conceptualize things and talk about things. But like before I came he, um, to Montecatini for residential treatment for my eating disorder, my therapist at home, she asked me really like, offhandedly you know she was like you know your eating disorder is separate from you right and I was Mm -hmm. like what like I just never thought of it that way and I think that even now as I'm here it's so hard for me to to look at these thoughts that I have these core beliefs these core values that I have and not see them as a part of myself Mm -hmm. but to see them as the disorder and I feel like being in denial about that allows me to hold on to the disorder mm-hmm. because it's like, oh no, it's just me. It's just who I am. It's just how I see the world. It's my yeah, world that, view. It is me. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a similar thing. Both Natalie, my dietitian, and Amanda, my therapist, have both asked me. They're like, you know that your eating disorder is bad, right? And I'm like, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um. It's not yeah. that bad. Like, I'm doing so much better. Right. <laughs> but right. it's still, you know, uncomfortable because it means that I still have more work to put in and I'm not done and I still have to sit in un- uncomfortable more. Right. I have to be, you know, I have to push myself through more shit, for lack of better words. Yeah. To be able to get to real recovery. Right. Because right now, that's not it. Right. And even in your sentence, you were using a rationalization, right? Like, well, I'm so much better than I was before, right? So it's like, oh, I'm not in my eating disorder right now because when I was, quote, unquote, in my eating disorder, I looked like this. And since I don't look like this, this, right, since I'm not engaging in this behavior or um, that's more what I meant by, like, it looked like this. Like, it looked like me doing this or me doing that. Not not even necessarily the physical appearance of what you appear like in your disorder because that varies so much person to person yeah but like what behaviors was were you doing what thoughts were you having like what was your emotional reaction to things um so yeah I think that would be that's an uncomfortable truth for me is that I am separate from my eating disorder okay they're two different things and mine would be I still have work to do Mm -hmm. I'm not out of the woods yeah that's an uncomfortable truth for me. Mm-hmm. Can't relate. <laughs> um, okay, so the next uh, article we're going to discuss is by Mark Worden, um, and it is Denial, How It Starts and How to Make It Stop. And he's talking mostly about alcoholism mm-hmm. in this article. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says how denial takes, an addiction takes two forms. Mm-hmm. The... Oh, I can drink like everybody else. Mm-hmm. I can drink socially. Mm-hmm. And then there's, but I don't drink blank, so I'm not a real alcoholic. Right. I only drink beer. I don't touch the hard stuff. Yeah. I've heard that so many times. I only times. drink wine. I only drink after five. I only right. blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. they all think that they're not the real alcoholic, mm-hmm. and that's a form of denial. Mm-hmm. Because, well. They're all various forms yeah. of alcoholic. Yeah. It's like the same thing with an eating disorder. Oh, I I don't have this kind of body, so I don't have Yeah. I'm not sick enough. Quote, you know. I, we hear that a lot, I think. Yeah. In our realm. Yeah, I think so 
he says, and I quote, each of which is convinced that he or she isn't the real alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And I think we do the same thing, but kind of opposite. Like, I don't have a problem because X behavior is worse than, is not as bad as Y behavior, and I don't do Y behavior. Mm. I've never been to the hospital or been inpatient. Mm -hmm. I've only ever been to residential. Mm -hmm. It's like potato, potato. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, sorry, you, what was the difference there? You were still under 24-hour care. (laughs) You still had nurses watching over you. You still were, like... Dude, you know? I do that all the time. Where like, I was gonna ask you what when was the last time you you caught yourself comparing your ED journey to someone else's? Yeah. In, in the hopes to convince yourself that yours isn't as bad. I'm a very high functioning <laughs> one. ED so, person. Yes, yes. ED person, depressed person, anxious yeah. person. Like, I you won't really see it on the outside, and I think. Um, that's what kept me sick for so long and continues to keep me sick in an environment like residential or in an environment even at like this level of care, PHP, partial Mm -hmm. hospitalization. Um, Like, because I can see how other people emotionally react. Like, they they may fly off the handle very visibly. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't react like that. So I'm in a clearly way way better place. I'm much more stable. I'm not, you know, I do that like... You're like, oh, they're struggling. Yeah. Like, yeah. I yeah. eat my food, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm good. Yeah. And, like, you know, it was just uh, last night at 10.30 p.m., I'm on the toilet in the bathroom emailing my nutritionist and my therapist saying, hey, so I've been really struggling to today with, with sticking to my meal plan, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so I think, you know, it's – it's hard. I think the nature of the eating disorder is comparison. Yeah. You know, I think so much I mean, of how, why... How else do you even start? Right. Is If you're not comparing yourself to your weight where you want to be. Mm-hmm. If you're not comparing yourself to other people that you see. If you're not mm-hmm. comparing what you eat to what people eat. Mm-hmm. That's how I started. I, mm-hmm. I basically... Um, my mind just came up with this idea. And then Mia came up with this idea and they Mm -hmm. said why don't you just eat less than everyone else around you very very innocent Mm -hmm. and it spiraled into 12 years later here I am (laughs) (laughs) and yeah so yeah I I mean I compare myself still I mean I've been to the hospital I've been every level of care that you can have Mm -hmm. well kind of I was in the ICU. Yeah. <laughs> so totally not the same as inpatient. Totally not the same. They're both at the hospital, just they're not the same. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I mean, but I wasn't there that long. <laughs> yeah, there's so many. That's I feel the comparison. Like, yep, and that's the thing. Like I feel like that. I mean, I forget who said it. Someone famous. Um, maybe Theodore Roosevelt, I think, but but like comparison is the thief of joy. Hmm. Um, and it's so true because I mean, how happy have we been living a life for the last, both of us, 12 years, Yeah, like in this comparison game, like for me, it's exhausting exhausting. and then you never get there. You're this donkey chasing a carrot No, and it just, you just never arrive, you know, like. For me in college, I think where I really started to notice it was like, oh, thinner people have people who stay in their life. Mm. All I have is people who leave. So if I'm thinner, then people will stay. And that and that's a comparison. 
right, mm -hmm. right there. And so, you know, I think, like you said, since it's, since like almost like the roots, like the seedlings of your eating disorder that are planted are comparisons, it's mm -hmm. so hard to be in this disorder and not compare. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, like, on the rationalization part, alcoholics try to convince people that they're not an alcoholic because of what they do. Mm -hmm. And we try to convince people that we don't have an eating disorder because of what we don't do or haven't achieved or mm -hmm. whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, mm -hmm. it's kind of, um, a, it's a very exhausting life to live. And mm -hmm. hopefully neither of us will have to live in it very much longer. Amen to that. Yeah. Okay, so the next article um, is called Denial and Addiction, and it is by Hannah Pickard. And She's got a great name. I know. I like that first <laughs> name. <laughs> I hope she doesn't pronounce it Hannah. <laughs> that would be unfortunate. <laughs> My friend is at her. Her name is Hannah Lore, and it looks like Hannah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's okay. all one word. So. That's why people call me Hannah. So then they're like, how? <laughs> how do you? Okay. Anyway. English is such a weird language. I know. So she actually compares addiction with eating disorder, which I think is... Duh. Mm -hmm. Like, I can go to an AA meeting and be like, I feel you, mm -hmm. but with my eating disorder. It's so funny that you say that because I used to work as at a residential treatment facility for, for teenagers. Addiction. Yeah, and they were I just applied with... to be a oh PCT at a teen addiction place. It's great work. It's so, it's such great work. And I would go to the AA meetings with yeah. the girls and with these young women and... I would sit there and I would resonate a lot with their stories. And I think I told you this earlier today. It wasn't until last night. Oh, no, I told I was telling somebody else. It wasn't until last night that I recognized my eating disorder is an addiction. Yeah. So it's really interesting that you bring up this topic. Well, I'm sure I'll, I'll tell you about yeah. the story as we get into it. But so, it's so interesting. Um, what I like about what she says, and I think that we talk about this a lot in, in program. Mm-hmm. The reason she's she first says that denial is uh, a defense mechanism, mm -hmm. which basically things are too painful or I would even say dangerous mm. for you to know them. So your mind keeps them from you. And that's the protective nature. Right. But what I like about what she says is when she's comparing addiction and eating disorders is she talks about there's one thing that keeps both addicts going, mm -hmm. addicts and eating disorder people. Mm -hmm. It's the exceptionalism mm -hmm. and the invulnerability that they think that they have to their addiction. Mm -hmm. So I'm the special snowflake because I can survive off less mm -hmm. food. Mm -hmm. Can't relate at all. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm the special snowflake. I can, like, restrict and get by. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just, I don't see my, I've always seen my eating disorder as an addiction. Mm -hmm. Well, once I became aware of its qualities, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. or at mm -hmm. least when it, when I tried to take it away from my coping skills. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it took, it took as long as it did because there was always 
a rationalization. Like, being in the mental health profession myself and also being someone who's really interested in the world of nutrition, Mm -hmm. um, I think I just always had a reason. You know, I just always had data to back it up or scientific articles, what have you. And then especially when I had this um, food intolerance study done on IBS, um, it was a blood type specific diet. It was like, oh, look, like, this this test result, um, this test result from the study is showing me what foods I can't and can't have. So it's not my choice; it's the test, mm-hmm. right? And so I had this like, and it was done at Yale University. So I was like, oh, oh it's wow. this prestigious university telling me Yale. these things, right? <laughs> and um, yeah, it wasn't until last night when. I was talking with a friend in the program. We were talking about Whole30, the Whole30 oh, yeah. diet. I don't, I don't know it because I only do pro-Anna, but, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I'm yeah. all about that like healthy lifestyle. Yes. Oh, yeah. So that's actually probably something I, that's worth mentioning is that orthorexia is like up yeah. and coming in the field, yes. right? Where it's this, this obsession with clean eating, quote unquote, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I don't touch gluten. I don't touch dairy, you know? Mm-hmm. And Whole30 is like an extreme of that. And um, I heard you say something about, you know, screw Whole30, Whole365. Uh, Whole365, yep. Yeah. That was my life. Like, cause, and so this is, the, and this is what was such the realization for me. So last night, Whitney was saying, oh, yeah, like uh, my coworkers, they do Whole30. And when those 30 days are over, they just stop. They go back to how they were eating before. And it's like nothing to them. And she was like, I know, me personally, I wouldn't be able to do that. And this huge light bulb went on in my head. I was like, oh, because my eating disorder is an addiction. It's just like somebody who can't have just one drink. Like once I started Whole30, I was like, why wouldn't I do this all the time? Why wouldn't, if I know I can, why why wouldn't I follow this rigid rule? So then it became Whole365. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my mom did this thing, and my dad did it this year, but in January, it's like dry January. Oh, yeah. And so she went the 30 days without drinking, which is like, you know, good for you. Right. Um, but I feel like if it were to be something like food-based, like mm. 30 days without any sweets, or Lent, oh my God, Oh my god, yeah. How many of us have <laughs> used Lent yeah. to give up certain things like chocolate because people do that and like Yeah, or sugar, added yeah, sugar. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. I feel like soda. Yeah, that's um <laughs> I've been drinking soda. Um I think that's why we are addicts because we can't just do the thirty days. I can't just do this one diet, mm-hmm. this one four-week, five-week diet, mm-hmm. it, that's my new reality. That's my new life. Mm-hmm. That, that's just how things are now. Mm-hmm. My eating disorder grabs onto that, and it's mm-hmm. like, well, we don't do anything else now. Right. You only eat this amount or less. Right, and that's, and that's that special snowflake mentality. Yeah. That, like, at least for me, that's where that edge came in of like, oh, well, I'm, I'm allowed to do this because I have this data from Yale that says right here that I shouldn't have gluten or dairy or apples or onions or yeah you know just this but wouldn't whole list that of literally be anybody normal um well in order to participate in the study you had to have a di- confirmed diagnosis of ibs and your symptoms had to meet a certain level of criteria oh. so when that happens you ha- your body has an inflammation response yeah. to certain food groups right and their theory was if we could identify those food groups um on a 
cellular, molecular level, right? So they take my blood, and what they do is they see which cells, um, like, swelled in response to these foods, and that's how they generated this list. But, yes, like, my sports nutritionist, like, he, from the first day I walked into my first treatment center last year, he was like, I think this is connected to your eating disorder more so. Just the Mm -hmm. way I was talking about it, he was like, illuminating some of that and I said no 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 way no way no way and I remember Look, I fought Yale. him yeah it's Yale I fought him for five months and I, I, it got to the point where I printed the article out I printed out two copies brought it to him yeah. to our session and I said let's discuss and he was like Natasha I read this article because you already sent it to me in a pdf and <laughs> he looked to the back and he's like it says it can't account for anxiety um disordered eating behavior such as ritualistic or mm-hmm. you know all these other factors and I had a plethora of those that I was struggling with mm-hmm. um and I still sat there and was like no <laughs> I'm still the special snowflake that doesn't refer it's just to my me. IBS yeah it's just my IBS it's just this and then sure yeah. as shit like two weeks later I was out to brunch with some friends and um it's this really great brunch spot they have like phenomenal french toast and they have this coconut macaroon french toast there and I really wanted it and I just decided to eat it and like everyone at the table was like yeah they're you haven't eaten stuff like this in like six years and anytime you do everything like you feel like shit you take a three-hour nap like your stomach flips out and like it it was fine nothing happened (laughs) and I was five months into treatment and Um. my sports nutritionist was like I, I mean I didn't have to tell him he was right he he got the satisfaction and now I eat pretty much all those things on my list and I don't yeah. have an issue. I was like, you eat, you drink milkshakes all the time. Mm-hmm. I wish, yeah. I mean, hopefully, I probably will never be able to do dairy because of that's just an intolerance. Yeah, right. But, yeah, you're like lactose intolerant. That's like a real yeah, thing. Yeah, that's a different, yeah. separate thing that's been my whole life. Right. But, right. um, I think when I read this, I thought, because she says how we use denial as a defense mechanism and it's protective because the truth can be too painful. Mm. And I think back to, like, when I was living in Seattle, 18 years old, 19 years old, um, starting college, and I turned into someone I didn't know. Mm. I completely had no idea what was happening. I thought I diagnosed myself with a psychotic break, and I thought I, I had, like, depressed depressive psychotic disorder or whatever Mm -hmm. like I I I just thought I was going insane I thought I was losing my mind and I get back home to treatment once again after like six months of being out Mm -hmm. just go straight back and I get diagnosed with PTSD Mm -hmm. and that was I want to say two or three years ago did a whole bunch of work on PTSD all about my stuck points um, and I got through some of them, but then there were some stuck points where I'm like, this is just a core belief of mine. I can't mm. cross this one off. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was able to separate what my abusive relationship, which is why I was diagnosed with PTSD. Mm-hmm. And that is how, why I had the behavior that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like, to me and everyone around me, like crazy. Yeah. And psychotic. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I was able to separate what being abused might say about me mm-hmm. that that I could finally be like, oh, these are his actions. Mm-hmm. And 
finally come come out of denial and it took me uh four years after it happened Mm -hmm. to be able to say out loud to another human being and myself Mm -hmm. it's still uncomfortable to say but Mm -hmm. to say what happened Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that's just that's because it was too painful there was something about what it said about me mm-hmm. that was too painful to um, even acknowledge mm-hmm. until I was able to be like, actually, like, I don't, that's why I have the tattoo. I refuse to carry the sins of others. Right. I, like, I didn't ask for that. I didn't. Right. I stayed. That's, that's my fault. Mm-hmm. But his actions are unexcusable. Right. Either way. Right. Right. It's so interesting that you talk about that, like what it says about me, because I feel like I've taken that same stance with my family trauma. Mm-hmm. And anytime I go, like when I started dating, uh, like when I was in like my most recent serious relationship, I was 26 when it started. And I remember feeling terrified to tell my partner's parents about the fact that I don't talk to my father and why. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling like they were going to think I wasn't a good fit for their son and that I was bad news and I came from a broken home and just all of those things that kind of come along with family strife or in a conflict. And I think for me, I was just so terrified that it said that I wasn't worthy of a father. I wasn't worthy of unconditional love. Like I was so set that it said something about me. And I remember being here in San Diego for a totally different reason. I was here for a conference last, just last year and on the phone with, um, my boyfriend at the time and saying, yeah, like I'm, I'm just, I feel like it's, it says something about me. And I think that's so true is, and I think that, you know, the fact that we both struggle with eating disorders, right. That it's that internalization, right. There's something wrong Mm -hmm. with me. So I have to change it. That's like what the eating disorders. I went to treatment for a month, thought I was cured, you know, obviously. <laughs> As we all do. Yeah. I was like, oh, cured. <laughs> Recovered. Done. Yeah. And, of course, when it, when he reached out again, I was like, he was so right. It was me. I'm so much better. Yeah. This will work now. Right. Because it's me. Yeah. This all happened because of me. Mm-hmm. You said it, so it must be true. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, internalization for sure. Yeah. Well, because the, the truth that it's him... Right? Like, means that you can't control that loss anymore. Yeah. And that's... It's that... Okay, I don't want to lose that. And so what can I do to make that not happen? Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, okay, well, I can blame myself because then it's something I can fix and I know I can... Yeah, I can, have can control, control myself. Over. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a huge thing with eating disorders, too, is, mm-hmm. like, I'm a huge control freak. Um, except for in this like coda for some reason i don't relate to that <laughs> but coda is codependence anonymous it's like yeah. aa but for code, codependent, kind of codependent relationships yeah. yeah um but anyway so my control issues like i think it happens for a lot of people people can have ocd very commonly and eating disorders mm-hmm. um because mm-hmm. it's either your way or the highway yeah <laughs> like but I'm the same way, so I know that I can control my actions. Restricting and anorexia is very much about being in control. Yeah. And that's, that's just what I do. Yeah. That's just I control what goes in my body because I can't control life outside of, outside of me. Mm-hmm. 
So, if I can't control what's outside of me, I somehow make it internal. And right. thus my eating disorder. Right. And that's another comparison game I play. Oh, I don't have OCD, so I'm not as bad. I'm not as sick. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I've, like especially when you're at a higher level of care, like residential, mm-hmm. and you are watching someone else in the kitchen, you know, preparing or plating their food who really struggles with OCD... Like, you're sitting there and you're, like, you're getting agitated <laughs> yourself because yeah. you're not in control of them being yeah. in their disorder in the way that they are in that moment. Yeah. And it, it was so easy for me to slide into that, oh, well, I'm not like that, so I'm not that yeah. sick. Yeah, I think when we were both there together, mm-hmm. I had that same thing because mine was, I think, the epitome of a two-week tune-up. <laughs> <laughs> I love how that phrase exists. <laughs> Um, but by, like, the fifth day, as I'm, like, re-nourishing, I'm, like, there's nothing I can do. The food is what it is. Mm -hmm. There's no point in this person hovering around the kitchen. It's not going to (laughs) change with our serving. Yeah. By the portions that they're going to give us. Yeah. We can't control it right now. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah. And And then I'm, like, oh, well, at least I don't do that. Right. And then I think, too, when you have that light bulb moment in res and you have that epiphany, like, it's almost like... I'm cured. Yep. Or I don't deserve to be here now. Yeah. Because I know this. Yeah. And then that person still doesn't know this. Yeah. I should be at a lower level of care. Yep. Because, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I have one that I think you can contribute a lot to Mm. by Thomas L. Schwenk. Schwank? <laughs> Schwank? Thomas. Yes, Thomas. <laughs> we'll go by Thomas. Yes. And he um, talks about how there's denial and stigmatization. Stigmatization? Mm-hmm. In um, athletes mm-hmm. when it comes to mental health. Mm-hmm. And you and I are both athletes. You, mm-hmm. I feel like, are are still more recently an athlete mm-hmm. than, than I. Mm-hmm. But... Um, he talks about there's two things that look very similar. Um, and so overtraining is a diagnosis mm-hmm. that, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. you can get, you get mostly when it's like you're burnt out. Yeah, or you um, are on the path to injury. Okay. Mm-hmm. And depression is... Or are or injured and you're still training. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of ways you can earn that badge, as we would say, in the yeah. athlete world. Yeah. And MDD, major depressive disorder, mm-hmm. um, kind of looks similar to being burnt out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's the fatigue. Mm-hmm. There's the pain, the chronic pain. Lack of motivation. Yeah. Lack of energy, yeah. So, no joy anymore. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so he was saying how they're so similar because, let's say I'm, I wasn't an athlete, mm-hmm. and by the time I got my diagnosis, I wasn't an athlete any longer. Mm-hmm. I got diagnosed with major depressive disorder, but because of my personality type, I was like, no, I that can't be true because I mm-hmm. am not weak. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I handle things. I cope with things. Mm-hmm. I'm not depressed. Mm-hmm. Depression is a weakness. I was so ashamed. Mm-hmm. And for an athlete receiving or being diagnosed with overtraining, mm-hmm. probably feels the same way. 
Like, that totally. can't be true. I love my, I love sports. Mm-hmm. Or this person does this number of workouts, so what's, why can't, like, I should be able to do that because that person yeah, over there is doing that. Yeah, so for you, how is overtraining looking back connected or separate from your depression? And are they? Mm-hmm. Is that even possible to have both mm-hmm. and separate them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's so interesting. So um, <laughs> I don't know if I ever told you this part of my story, but when I first started, my first day of uh, eating disorder treatment ever in my whole life mm-hmm. was the same day that I was starting my marathon training plan to requalify for the Boston Marathon. So if that doesn't illuminate my overtraining diagnosis in and of itself, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, but I think like for me, as we started to unpack that, you know, there was a day where, um, my coach had, a had, um, put on the training plan, a really hard tempo run where I had to like, um, 10 times for one minute at a time, I'd have to go at a significantly faster pace. And this was over the course of like a six or eight mile run. So you're surging, right? Like over and over again. And your rest period was only like two minutes. It's like sprint for a minute, like slow, like jog slower for a while. But you're still, you're basically going from race pace to sprinting pace and then back to race pace. Mm -hmm. So it's not even like you're at a casual jog. I can talk to you right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And after that workout, so I went to that workout and not have, not eating a breakfast, Mm -hmm. um, probably restricted dinner the night before mm-hmm. didn't sleep very well was up at four so you're talking about refueling yeah and fueling under fueling on top of the overtraining yep and no recovery right no recovery because I went yeah. from that workout and I went straight to the Harvard Stadium in Boston um and I did a workout there that was a partner workout with this group called November Project where your partner would sprint up and down two full sections of the stadium stairs there and then tag you and then you would sprint too. And so I just did that until I literally collapsed on a stair. I was Mm. like, I have, I'm, I'm devoid of energy. I have nothing in me. I can't even, I couldn't even fathom getting to the other side, walk by walking to get my water bottle. Um, and my nutritionist is like in treatment. He's like, look, you, I know you just came back from hip surgery and you are on you are on your way to to another injury mm-hmm. and i had gotten the i tore 65% of my labrum off by overtraining mm-hmm. and training on it not knowing that it yeah. was or pushing through the pain because yeah. that's what you do as an athlete you yeah. push through pain and exactly. if you're not you're weak yeah exactly right? exactly and so when we took away so like as my sports nutritionist was like illuminating this truth right i was like okay I really have two choices here right now. I can continue down this path and end up right back where I started, even though I promised myself my hip surgery was the last one, mm-hmm. you know, or I can choose to kind of take a step back from my sport. And as I did that, I started going through what he would call is the withdrawal. Mm. So when you overtrain, you, t- you, you get into avoidance. Um, well, you can tend to have this um, exercise dependence where you depend on the exercise I to see. stabilize your mood. Yeah. Right. And so now it's like it's like any addiction. When you take Mm -hmm. away the addiction, you go through a withdrawal. And so at first my anxiety spiked, but then it was followed by this huge, huge depressive episode. Yeah. Yeah. That lasted pretty much until my third week in res here at Montecatini. So, yeah, I have a similar thing that happened, but I always another comparison. I've never passed out 
while training. Mm-hmm. And people do that who are normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. My, I must never have trained so hard, hard enough. enough. Mm-hmm. And, totally. But I did break my back. Two vertebrae. Mm-hmm. Shattered. Mm. Your poor body. I know. And I trained on that for five months. Because yeah. I didn't know. And yeah. it got to the point where I couldn't do a round off without crying. Yeah. I just, like, it and It's hurt. so common in gymnastics. Yeah. It is so and, common to push through that pain. my coaches would say all, every gymnast has back pain. And so... Because of that kept training. Yeah. Yeah. Kept training. Every time I would land, jump, any, literally all of gymnastics. Yeah. <laughs> I... It was just so painful, and I still don't think I ever blame my eating disorder mm-hmm. for breaking my back and also not healing. Right, right, the recovery. I'm, yeah, I'm not in college right now doing gymnastics because of my eating disorder. Right. I mean, probably a lot of other reasons. Right. But when it comes down to it, I broke my back because of my eating disorder. Right. I didn't recover or heal in the time that I was supposed to, like other people do, because of my eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And I somehow could not ease up on my eating disorder or put it to the side or give it, give it up mm-hmm. enough for my sport. Mm-hmm. I had chosen. To do, well, I chose when you're injured, disorder. it's especially even, it's even harder because, yeah, because now you're not yeah. exercising. Yeah. You know, it's so I mean, hard. I still exercise, that's the thing. I still mm-hmm. want to practice and would just Same. do conditioning <laughs> all day. Yeah, I would go and lift uppers. And yeah. I had the, I was 26 at the time that I had this surgery. I got, like, major abs. Yeah, oh, yeah. I was jacked. Like, and I was on my bike at 1030 o'clock at night, you know. It yeah. was, it was insane. Um, and I was working full-time. I was in grad school full-time. Yeah. Um, but, like, I remember going to this doctor, and all he does is hip surgeries. And he learned the, um, the procedure that he used on me from the guy who created it at the Olympic training center in Colorado. So like, this is literally his bread and butter. This is all this guy does. And he was like, I have never seen a tear this big in someone your age before. And still, it's, it's just so shocking. Like I had, I was around so many providers and none of them, mm-hmm. there was still no, like, are you eating enough? Like when the, yeah. the recovery, like to get back fully, it took me about two years. From the hip surgery. And, like, it's it's so funny that we're talking about this because, like, sitting here right now, I'm like, oh, I wonder if it took two years because I was in so my in my eating disorder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I still have back pain every day. I wonder if that wouldn't have happened if I didn't stay in my eating disorder for another five, six, seven years. Yeah. it's a great question. Um. Okay, so thank you for shedding light on the overtraining because I think even the way it's worded in the article is not very illuminating to what it is yeah yeah and totally and like the only other thing I wanted to say on that is I'm so glad that you asked that question because in my career as a therapist on a college campus like I work really passionately and and intentionally with the athletic Mm. student athlete population around destigmatizing mental health and talking to a counselor and go and meet with each of the teams and just have a really open conversation Mm -hmm. to help like break down those barriers because so true. I mean, I, I think oftentimes with athletes, we don't see them until things have reached almost critical mass. Yeah. Because of that mentality of, oh, you know, what if my coach finds out? Then they're going to bench me. Um, they're going to reduce yeah. my playing time. Like, yeah. people are going to think I can't hack it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so we are going to talk about Blind Spot, the book that we read for this mm-hmm. unit, um, by Mazarin Banaji and Anthony Greenwald. And so there's a section on lies, the different colors of lies, mm. and what sparked my interest because of my history with my eating disorder and and it's uh, kind of, you know, similarity to addiction was this section on colorless lies. And they quote, I wish I could pronounce his name, Dostoyevsky, <laughs> Dostoyevsky. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> some, I want to say Russian. There's a... There's a quote here. Yeah, that, there's a quote. That spoke to you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but there are other things which a man is afraid to tell even to himself, and every decent man has a number of such things stored away in his mind. And I like that because it's almost saying that what makes a person decent is their inability to see the whole truth of themselves. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because it would be so hard to live with ourselves, I, I think. Mm. So there has to be things that I don't know about myself or I'm in denial about myself. Mm. I mean, with my history, it would probably be hard to function if I knew everything. <laughs> um, well, that's, that's the fear that keeps you in your disorder. Yeah. That belief, yeah. Um, that you couldn't handle it. Yeah, and so, like, the drinker, uh, an example that they use in the book is... Mm-hmm. The drinker who's at the doctor's office and the doctor asks, how many drinks do you normally have? They say two at the home bar. When really in, in the medical field, that may be four drinks be, due to the alcohol content that is that you're putting in your, your drinks at home. Mm-hmm. But they both see that as truth. Mm-hmm. I said two drinks. I'm, I only have two drinks. Mm-hmm. And... The doctor doesn't know the difference. Right. Because he's not there. Right. But right. he takes those truth too. So right. there, he's lying to himself. And that's, mm-hmm. I guess, more um, detrimental than anything. Yeah. And they, they also talk about dissociation, which I like because we talk about that a bit. This is in a different chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there is dissociation and cognitive dissonance, which um, mm-hmm. Adrian Barden also talked about. But um, dissociation is basically when there's something that... Well, I'll read the definition. Dissociation sure. is the occurrence in one and the same mind of mutually inconsistent ideas that remain isolated from one another. Mm-hmm. So basically, you're holding two truths, or one, you're holding something that you have just discovered is true, mm-hmm. but doesn't match up with your belief system. Right, exactly. And that's also cognitive dissonance, because, I'll read another quote, becoming aware of conflicts between our beliefs and our actions, or between two simultaneously coexisting beliefs, violates the natural human striving for mental harmony and consonance. Mm-hmm. We want... It is so uncomfortable 
for humans to have their reflective mind, which is what they tell the world, mm-hmm. and their automatic mind be different, but it just happens. Mm-hmm. And they even say that we're our automatic preferences and beliefs are actually foreign to us. We're very familiar with our reflective beliefs because we've practiced. We know it's almost rehearsed as to what you'll you'll say. What like are you pro gay or anti gay? Mm-hmm. Pro gay, of course. But with the um IAT or AIT, yeah, IAT, um people find that they're actually automatic thoughts and preferences are for anti-gay. Hmm. Um, which can be hard for people to find out. Yeah. So then, yeah. the question that they ask, or they don't ask, they say, um, it may be best to let sleeping dissociations lie. Hmm. Like, it might be best to be living in that denial mm-hmm. if it's safer. Mm-hmm. And although they do say many people actually do want to know mm-hmm. but is that safe mm. and that's my question that's the big question are is being now safe or or which is is the is being denial helpful harmful or does it depend on the person and the situation mm. and i feel like it's a cop-out to say person and situation hmm. but i mean i already have my stance um, dose-dependent content-specific. <laughs> what? Like, if it depends on the person, it's, like, dose-dependent content-specific. Something yeah. my sports nutritionist used to always say. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess my question is, from what we've talked about so far, Yeah. do you think that we should let sleeping dissociations lie? Yeah. So... I'm going to relate this to eating disorder treatment because I think it fits so naturally. And it's this conversation we were having the other day in a nutrition group about um, people who struggle with binging. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I just can't ever have that food in my house. Right. Right? I feel like buying into that keeps that person sick, especially around that food, right? Oh, I just can't have that food. Whereas, like what the nutritionist was talking about is like, I think you should always have your fear food, fear foods in your house at all times mm-hmm. because the belief that like, Oh, I can't ever have that is what keeps you in that like restrict binge mm-hmm. kind of mindset and knowing and working to trust yourself to be like, okay, I'm going to have, maybe your thing is cookies, right? I'm going to have cookies tonight because I feel like having cookies and knowing that I could have them again, Friday, maybe it's mm-hmm. Monday, knowing that I could have them again Friday if I wanted to is what allows me to have three right now and then go put it away, mm-hmm. right? That's like what you're striving towards. So I feel like it's only when we are able to look at these, tr- look at these things that we don't want to know about ourselves and know that they are not the end-all be-all. They're not what defines us or mm-hmm. they are not these permanent fixtures. They are not this, like, it's going to feel like this, yeah, forever, forever is that we can grow from them and learn from them and move on from them. I feel like if we stay and allow ourselves to harbor them, we never ever let go of them. Yeah. You know, so like really similar to the homophobic versus non, 
uh, example that you gave, there's this um, test you can take. It was created by Harvard called the unconscious racial bias. And it's like a series of pictures that it just has you click and um, there's like words like good or bad and it shows like yeah. people of various skin no, tones. No, no, no. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what, what this book is about. Yes. Or most of it. Yes. Um, or a good chunk of it, at least. Yes. And the I think it's... IAT. Yes. And I think it's only when you become aware of that... Can you start changing your actions for yeah. the better? Yeah. I, I do agree. I think... It's like what the whole thing of our eating disorder is, right? It's like... Yeah. I But there I can't... has to be a level of protection. Right. But that's where our coping skills come in, right? So right now, we feel like if these things are really true about me, I can't handle that. So I need to use my eating disorder to cope with that and try to change these truths, mm-hmm. right? Whereas if we're able to, like, invite some of those truths in and sit with them and use our other coping skills, mm-hmm. then over time, yeah, it changes. I personally hate to be the last person to know anything about myself. Mm. And, you know, I... That has, I guess, an, that insecurity of thinking that I'm oblivious to something mm-hmm. about myself mm-hmm. that everyone else knows. Yeah. Makes me very hyper aware of myself. Mm-hmm. But let me just bring in the last article that we'll talk about. Um, it's by Martina S. Um, Voss and mm-hmm. her colleagues, and they studied denial. And the social and emotional outcomes in lung cancer patients. Mm. And she, they found... Um, yeah, this was a really interesting yeah. study. They found that their most interesting finding is that patients who were in higher levels of denial, mm-hmm. were in high, higher levels of denial, increased their... or experience what what does that say um where are you are like the our main and most interesting finding okay is that patients fare better when they express a moderate level of denial um or increase their level or increase their level of denial of of after diagnosis over time Patients showing little denial proved to experience worse social and emotional outcomes and overall quality of life. And they attribute that to the fact that if you're in denial, you're not thinking about your diagnosis all the time. You're going about your life. You're, mm-hmm. you're not letting it interfere with relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of the conscious denial um, that has been talked about by others. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I I go back to Pickard and I'm like, you're right. It's a very protective mechanism and mm-hmm. our brains are so phenomenal at protecting us. Mm-hmm. They're really smart. Yeah, <laughs> they are. Like to yeah. even have such a thing as dissociation. Yeah. It where you can literally because something's so uncomfortable just like dip out. Yeah. <laughs> Irish goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Irish, yeah. Um, well, so I think you bring up a good point, right? And I think 
I think here they're talking about the special snowflake sort of form of denial, right? Mm. So they're like, they may accept that they have cancer, Mm -hmm. but their denial might be that they could die from it, right? Like, well, I'm going to beat it. I'm going to be that 20% statistic. Or chemo won't stop me from living my life exactly how it was before. Right. And so I don't... I don't know that we can really suss that. I mean, this is just my interpretation, so maybe I'm, you know, I'm, I didn't look I, at the yeah. full article, so maybe I'm not having full information, but I don't think that not being in denial means that you hold the absolute truth, right? Like, I think that person is saying, I, I feel like it's less about denial and choosing belief. I don't think they're in denial that they're a cancer patient. I think they're choosing to believe that they could be a statistic from mm. the um, How pool that beats it. Yeah. <laughs> well, to be honest, this was a study done, and it was very, you know, APA formatted and mm-hmm. dry and boring in numbers and statistics, and the discussion wasn't anything like you just said Mm -hmm. where it told us well actually it's belief Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. um, I'm also an eternal optimist so yeah and I'm an eternal uh pessimist yeah (laughs) or realist you're yeah thank you yeah I'm not a pessimist you're pragmatic well so Mm -hmm. I actually I read this really interesting book um called the optimism bias and it talks about the clinical significance of believing in a positive outcome and how much that increases your likelihood of having a positive outcome, right? So, like, I really, and, and it's, it's validated by so many different studies. Like, if you believe a positive outcome will happen, I think it was, I think the percentage was, like, over 90% that it is likely that you will have that outcome well, that you're seeking. Well, that's the same seeking. idea with positive affirmations every day. Right, Exactly. And so I feel like when we're talking about denial and whatnot, it's, it's not like, oh my God, I have cancer and, and that is my truth and I am living in that every day. And like the opposite of that would be, I don't have cancer, life is great and I'm not yeah. that sick and blah, blah, blah. Like I think it's, it's holding both. Yeah. I have cancer and I can beat this. Or I have cancer and like, I'm still going to live my yeah, life. Yeah, with lung cancer, I mean this wasn't explicitly said, but the fact that, you know, it's not a good chance of recovery, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but I think the denial is, well, I, I'm going to be that statistic, like you said. Right. So I know right. I have cancer. I'm not stupid. Right. <laughs> I heard him. Right. <laughs> Her. Them. Yes. Yes. I heard them. Right. Um, but I just won't let it take me down. Right. So I think when you're asking this greater question, right, is denial harmful or hurtful? I think especially for us with eating disorders, it's so easy to get into that black or white mindset, right? Mm. Denial is either yeah, hurtful or it helps you. Period end of story. Yeah. And there are so many areas in between that, right? Yeah. Like where denial keeps you sick, it also helps keep you safe, right? Yeah. Like but it's also like like let's take my eating disorder, for example, right? Denial kept me sick, and it was keeping my eating disorder safe. Yeah, and my so, eating disorder, so my eating disorder stemmed from my parents' divorce. Right. It kept me sick, and in my own world, because it became my only coping mechanism mm-hmm. for all of life's challenges. It became a one-size-fits-all mm-hmm. coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. 
but it also kept me safe from the distress of my actual life. Right. And my PTSD kind of behaving in that way and saying that it was me and I'm just psychotic and all of that was keeping me psychotic mm-hmm. because I didn't have the right diagnosis, obviously, because I right. diagnosed myself. <laughs> but it it's also like kept me safe because then I didn't have to have to admit to what actually happened. Right. And if you had stayed in that denial place... For long. Right. I don't know that we would be... I don't know that you would be here having this conversation no. with me right now, you know? So I think when you're asking, is denial harmful or hurtful? Well, like... If we look at that, there was a helpful part of it and that it was protecting your eating disorder. Yeah, we say that about eating disorders too. Yes. We say that our eating disorder served a purpose and that's why they exist. Absolutely. Absolutely. So denial serves a purpose, that's why it exists. Exactly. And I don't think that we can label that purpose as all good or all bad, even when we're saying, oh, well, it was like helpful for me to stay in this denial. Yeah, for sure. Like, and had you stayed there in that place, like, I don't know that you would be here today. Yeah. I mean, it only took me four years. It doesn't matter how long it takes you, like... But, you know, I mean, I think coming out of it, looking back, Mm -hmm. the denial phase where I was in, you know, my PTSD episodes Mm -hmm. and associating, that's not fun to look back on. Mm -hmm. Neither is the trauma, but at least I can separate myself from it now. Right. Versus if you had stayed in that denial, it would still be a part of you. Yeah, I mean, look what happened last time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So. So I think you have your answer. Yeah. At least from me, anyway. So it's the the easy way out. One size does not fit all. Yeah, I I don't even know that it's the easy way out. I think it's the hard truth, you know? I think that... It's not helpful or harmful, it serves a purpose. Well, I don't think it's I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. Okay. And it's so dialectical of you. Nancy <laughs> <laughs> would love it. It's so treatment of me, right? Yeah. I'm, oh, I'm recovered. Look at me. Um, <laughs> no, but I really do think it is both, and it's about in that moment. Okay, is this more harmful and it is hurtful? I mean, helpful. Like, is it more harmful than helpful right now? Yeah. And looking at that scale and yeah. recognizing is the distress mm-hmm. of reality outweighing being in denial this like well I like how Adrian Barton also says how denial is not bullshit right. it's not some bullshitting it's not um, delusion mm-hmm. and it's not wishful thinking mm-hmm. it is someone's actual reality mm-hmm. it's just not factual reality right like for me for example when I started my job as a therapist out of grad school, right, at Boston, in Boston, it wouldn't have been helpful for me right then to come out in my life and say, oh, my God, I have an eating disorder that needs treatment because I would have lost my mm-hmm. job. And when it got to a point where I, I like, knew I couldn't keep going the way it was, it was like, okay, now I actually need to get out of denial in order to keep my job. Yeah. Because if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm going to crash. You know, so I think it is, I think it is both harmful and hurtful, uh, helpful, (laughs) helpful and harmful and figuring out when the, when the, when the scale starts dipping too far in one direction, how to teeter it out yeah, or what you need to do to, to address it. 
I agree. I think for me, the... I, I'm probably still in denial if I'm really thinking about it. Because I, I every time I end up in residential, I'm like, oh, it's just a mistake. My insurance must be really good. 